0: for the World War II radio podcast. Today's episode is an episode of NBC's War Reporters, a weekly series featuring commentary and reporting on the war effort. This episode first aired January 17th, 1942. It features Earl Godwin reporting on the death of Carol Lombard and other war news. The World War II Radio Podcast is a brick-pickle media production. If you like the show, please leave feedback on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. You can also support the show by clicking on the link in the show notes and offering your financial support. Your donations help us continue to produce the podcast, and thanks to those of you who have already donated. So thanks for listening, and enjoy today's episode of the World War II Radio Podcast. This is Ben Grauer speaking for Libby Owens Ford Glass Company, presenting War Reporters. Each Saturday at this time, Libby Owens Ford, makers of safety glass for your automobile, will bring to the microphone an outstanding war reporter who will discuss the war events of the week. This weekly analysis may originate in New York or Washington, in Honolulu, London, Iceland, or Bern, wherever is to be found the reporter best qualified to bring to the nation a clear picture of the history-making developments of the week. Libby Owens Ford and its distributors welcome you to this first broadcast of this new program and sincerely hope that today's analysis and those every Saturday will be helpful to you in following the changing tides of war. The reporter of the week will not be interrupted for commercial announcements. The brief message of the sponsor will be confined to the beginning of the program, giving you a safety tip on how to prolong the life of your car and reminding you of the greater protection offered by Libby Owens Ford Safety Plate Glass. Now, our first war reporter, Earl Godwin, selected to open this new
1: program because of his familiarity with the Washington war scene. Here is Earl Godwin. And good evening to all of you. You know, tremendous things occur when a great big, well, you might say a great big sleeping giant like the United States of America that's played around and had a nice easy time and has gone to take a nap and is aroused from an easy slumber and starts kicking the bedclothes around and getting ready for really a job of work. You know, enough has occurred this past six days in Washington and all around the world to be noted down as an epoch in itself. In the United States, from the planting of a whole new rubber industry, synthetic though it may be, through the vast upheaval in the high command in our business of forging the thunderbolts of war, and the naval disturbances within a few miles of New York City, the constant downward pressure of the Japanese towards Singapore, the puzzle of the German propaganda connected with their wintry campaign in Russia, there must be a score of things, each one tremendous, a score of things occurring this week, and any one of which could rate a separate analysis and discourse. But before I go any further, let me remind you that we often hear that this is a war for the civilian as well as for the soldier, and the death of lovely Carol Lombard, the beautiful screen actress, and some 15 army flyers in that plane crash in Nevada, is proof of that phrase. Miss Lombard, the wife of Clark Gable, flew to Indianapolis last night to sell some $2.5 million in defense bonds. Her flight was really in the line of duty. But probably never in all our history have we had anything shut off so quick and so thoroughly as rubber. And nothing could change our mode of life so thoroughly either. If it were true that we were never going to have any more, tire rationing is already in the cards. Not quite so soon in days as we expected, but the rationing is certainly on its way, and it's going to be hard-boiled. American life would have to be recast The shape of things to come would certainly not include any suburbanites driving 5 to 40 miles from home to business and back again, and the farm-to-market picture would be quite different. And that's why the start of this new synthetic rubber industry, through action and plans and loans from the Reconstruction Finance Corporation at Washington, seems to be one of the greater and deeper wartime moves at your nation's capital, the capital of the United Nations too, this week. In that job, $400 million is set aside for the initiation and expansion of this business, which will produce a lot of rubber for a lot of things. But the rubber that most people want to know about is that which goes into your tires. There may be a different story to tell later on, but the story in Washington now and this week was that synthetic rubber will make good tires capable of lasting a long time, but not at any more than 35 miles an hour, and it looks like the war had simply moved us out of the joyriding era for a while at least. When Jesse Jones made this announcement, I think it was Monday, Monday or Tuesday of this week, we were first promised 90,000 tons of this synthetic stuff by the first of next January. And uh, by the way, we, we used 750,000 tons, the last figure that we had for last year, so 90,000 tons isn't much. As I say, that was Jesse Jones' soft-spoken statement, but later I understand, rather unofficially and personally, that his experts believe they could boost that amount to 225,000 tons by January 1st and be going at the rate of 400,000 tons 18 months hence. These amounts, I hate and hasten to say, are not to be taken as certain. Don't go out and sell any tires on what I tell you, because this is a time when anything can happen. What we probably need in this immeasurable production of the uh, munitions and weapons of war is an industrial giant with the power and the prowess and the foresight of the fabled Paul Bunyan of the North Woods. To do this job the OPM has been trying to do, the president takes Donald Nelson, one of the men already there, one of the men that business sent to Washington on the defense program, and the president makes him supreme in the field of turning industry into a Jovian workshop wherein to concentrate on these thunderbolts of war. And, of course, this is the one-man head which so many people have been advocating and yelling for. And no man probably ever had so big a job on so big a program for so great a stake, because on the resources and the industry of America depends the freedom of the world. If the results of American industry up to date in this war program is as lacked and questionable as the amazing Truman Report claims, then Donald Nelson will need really superhuman power. And if he should succeed in the face of all these things that the Senate has said about industry, as so many of his friends believe he will succeed, he could easily be recorded someday as a greater hero in the world to come than ever was the Duke of Wellington in his feat of stopping the, well, I would say the relatively amateur Napoleon Bonaparte. The present shakeup in the production offices at Washington beat the scathing Truman Committee report by about a day, and that Truman report cried loudly for somebody who knew how to handle the enormous authority and the power already existing. One of the features of that report was the description of the terrific power and the tremendous power that already existed in this industrial war industry production board, but it seemed to be so much power that it was too hot to handle. It certainly wasn't handled in uh, accordance with the way the OPM thought it was being handled. It handled, if you would read the Truman Report, which comes from an investigating committee, which has held numerous hearings and prints a report that is as large as a telephone book. It's headed by the energetic Senator Truman of Missouri, And his committee wrote into its first report, called an interim report, with promises of many more to come, more scathing criticism of a government effort than anybody recalls around Washington since the long-forgotten screed from a far-forgotten Congress against the World War airplane outfit more than 20 years ago. About the only good word for anybody in this whole report was a really warm commendation of the United States Maritime Commission, which, by the way, is a nice little close corporation producing ships, and well on its way toward the amazing goal of launching a merchant ship a day and doing its work without fuss and feathers and really without a lot of creaking machinery. One reason for that is that it's now about six years old and it's been going along. It has uh, it has conquered the original troubles and got the bugs out of the plans and going, going along very well. The Senate report... That I'm speaking of blamed the automobile industry no end for going soft and concentrating more on private cars than on needed war work. That's the report speaking. It criticized airplane production and especially criticized the type and quality of ma- most of the American fighting planes. And this slam and criticism was immediately denied by the aviation industry. Incidentally, I think it's well known in Washington that not long ago, Leon Henderson, Price Control, asked for a 50% cut in the automobile, automobile production, and he didn't get it because we are told that William Knudsen, who will come into the picture in a moment, recommended that the cut be only 20%. The report knocked hard on the regiment of hard-working dollar-a-year men and others serving with not even a dollar a year, charged him with serving their business first, the United States second, made so much of a criticism that it is likely we may see changes in that setup criticized war production so severely that many competent observers in Washington feel that the report was overdone, to say the least. But at any rate, Congress reared back. Many members began shouting for a clean sweep, began to yell for prosecution by the Department of Justice, and constant auditing of the accounts and profits, which in many instances have been gigantic, and they were admittedly so by the people who got them. The president's announcement that William Knudsen will become a lieutenant general in the army and attend strictly to the manufacturing business of army planes, tanks, jeeps, guns, and what have you is considered in Washington as a master move. Knudsen, we call him Bill Knudsen, as a production man on OPM, had much more to attend to than production. He had Washington politics. Someone seemed to be always after his scalp. Knudsen is an automobile factory production man, by no means a politician. And he certainly knows how to use a monkey wrench, but he doesn't know what to do when a monkey wrench is dropped by somebody else, or perhaps purposely into the gears. Along with all these moves comes the announcement of a doubled army. Secretary of War Stimson says it'll be 3,600,000 men this year. Of course, that means American soldiers going to other lands. And incidentally, we had just about that many men in the American, ex- uh, the American army in the World War, two million abroad, two million here. But it means American soldiers now in other lands, and this day is the anniversary of the day on which Winston Churchill said America would send ships and ships and planes and clouds, but no expeditionary force of our soldiers in 1941. To many, a military expert who knows how to read the news from Russia knows what the dispatches mean. The doubled army plan that I have just spoken of, announced by Secretary of War, means that despite the stories of Nazi debacles in the snows of Russia, that there is no military evidence of any real final breakdown in the Nazi military machine, and they find little evidence this past week of any breakdown in the German civil setup in Washington, The gentlemen who deal with overall world strategy believe the glooms which are permitted to ease out of Germany are a part of a clever Nazi propaganda scheme to make us believe Germany is down and out and that the Russians are cleaning up and hence will not need so much help from the United States. It is constantly being stressed in the undertone of diplomatic and military news and conferences in Washington to watch out for a Nazi trick and remember the Germans hold 90% of the ground they took. Someday, all this that I am saying to you may turn out to have been an excess of caution. I repeat it here because it is dominant in the belief at Washington this past week. There's a somber tone in the private advice you get in Washington from those who know about the situation at at Manila. General MacArthur's hard-bitten army is nothing to rate optimism at the end. The Japanese are having a harder time than they anticipated, but that's because they're up against a master soldier with a well-trained force but Washington is not optimistic over Manila. The Japanese believed believe they could take the Philippines in 30 days and be on their way down the line toward uh, Singapore and the Netherlands with nothing behind them. Incidentally, Australia and others in that Pacific quarters know that the Japanese are a terrible foe. To the Aussies and to the Dutch East Indies, the job is not to defeat Hitler, but to defeat the Japs, and for that reason the Australians are dealing directly with the United States at Washington. They seem to have the attitude that if Churchill doesn't like that idea, it is just too bad. You can have any number of predictions that Russia will or will not jump on Japan next spring. I doubt if there's anyone in Washington who knows, but the long headed analysts feel that Japan and Russia have an interest have an understanding which will keep Japan in fish and Russia in peace. And that's all from Earl Godwin at this time.
0: Thank you, Earl Godwin. Be sure to tune in at the same time over this station next Saturday and hear another famous war reporter. His name will not be announced until the last moment when you tune into this station. The reporters from week to week are selected on the basis of what news is happening around the world. The war reporter best qualified to analyze the history-making events is then selected from a staff of expert commentators to be heard on these programs. And so, till next Saturday, this is Ben Grauer, your safety glass spokesman, saying good afternoon for Libby Owens Ford, a great name in glass. This is the National Broadcasting Company...